Our Father, every once in a while, we'll uh, read a newspaper and turn the page and find the obituaries. And one day, our name will be there. That's inevitable. But in the interim, you have given us this life. And you invite us to trust you with our lives, with our entire lives. Heart, soul, mind, body, will. We, we all start out thinking we know best. We all start out with our plans and dreams and ambitions and what we're going to do. And we work pretty hard at it. We're pretty set on it. When we're young, often we don't want anyone telling us what to do. And then inevitably, this happens. We, uh, we run into a brick wall going about 100 miles an hour in some way, shape, or fashion. And that's when we usually look to you. And those, uh, those brick walls are the best thing that ever happened to us. We've all hit them by your grace. They haven't killed us. Psalm 68:20. to the Lord belongs, escapes from death. It can be a, a physical wall. It can be a, an emotional wall, uh, a relational breakup. There's all kinds of them. But uh, I think it's fair to say that almost every guy in this room would say, yeah, I had my brick wall experience. And that's when we start pondering life and realizing we really don't know what we're doing. And there you are, waiting, calling, drawing us. How thankful we are, Lord, that uh, the fact is, on our own, we'd never come after you. You come after us. Uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that was us. So out of mercy and grace, we heard the gospel. We found out that Jesus is the only Savior and that if we'll trust in him and his finished work on the cross and turn from our sin and turn to him, we can be forgiven. And now he is our God and he is our master and he is our shepherd and he is our Lord and he will lead us through life. So we're all at different stages on the trail of life. One day that obituary will have our name on it. But until then, we enjoy your grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness you teach us through the hard things. You have been so good to us. You give us favor. I pray tonight that you'll give us perspective on how much it is that you love us. So often we question your love for us. But you want us to be rooted and grounded in your love. Help those roots go deep tonight. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series this semester we're calling 
Godly and Gutsy, a little bit of an unusual title. Let's give a definition of Gutsy. I gave it last week. I'll probably give it every week because it's not a term we use a lot, but it's a word, and it's a pretty good word. To, um, for someone to be gutsy, it simply means that they're marked by courage and determination. Uh, the title of the semester is not just gutsy, it's godly and gutsy. And we put those two things together because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've realized that things have dramatically changed in our culture over the last several years. Now, change has been coming for quite a while, but it has ramped up and it has accelerated. There has uh, historically been an appreciation for the Christian faith um, in the formation of this country. You know, laws come from somewhere. And there are different books, there are different systems of ethics and of belief. No question that the book above all books, which helped set the course and direction of this nation, was the Bible. You go to Washington, D.C., you still see verses, which I'm sure many would like to erase, but they're uh, cut in marble. Kind of hard to erase those things. What has happened, we've had freedom, we've had liberty, we have had, as other Christians around the world suffered and were persecuted, that didn't touch us. But with the changes that have happened, we're getting a taste of it, and probably more is on the way. So, it's going to take a courage. It's going to take some guts to live for Christ. For us, in a way that it didn't take, it, it wasn't called for before, because quite frankly, we had a free pass. You know this, and I know it. So, if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, um, if you've met him, if he has pulled you to himself, and you have believed the gospel and called out to him that you believe he is God, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if you, become, if you have become a Christ follower, uh, you are being conformed into the image of Christ. We who are ungodly, we who are sinners, just by the grace of God, nothing of us, we're on the road... He's taking us from being ungodly, and he's maturing us into godly men. So the point is, right now in this culture, if you're trying to be a godly man, you're going to have to be gutsy, and you're going to have to show some courage, and you are going to have to be marked by courage, and you're going to have to be marked by determination to follow Christ, because it's uh, the easy days are over. We'll leave it in God's hands, 
the, the degrees to which we deal with that and the timing and all of that, that's in his hands. But we just need to know that we're about to enter into some things we haven't seen before or experienced before. So we're looking in this series, we're going to be looking at some men in Scripture who lived in difficult times, when it was not popular to be a Christian. And quite frankly, that's pretty much everybody in the Scripture. I mean, you got some exceptions. But for the most part, they were, uh, because they were following the Lord, they had enemies. Because they were following the Lord, they had pushback. Because they were following the Lord, they had uh, persecution. Because they were following the Lord, uh, they were scoffed at and ridiculed and not appreciated. And, uh, but this is new to us. We started last week with Paul. We're going to continue with Paul. And I'd like you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight. And we want to... We're not doing a verse-by-verse in 2 Corinthians, but we're kind of helicoptering and landing on sections that talk about the importance of developing courage through difficulty and hardship, Uh, Paul knew all about this, if you were here last week. We said last week, in the Old Testament, Job is the epitome of a man who suffers. Nobody in this room has suffered like Job. A lot of guys have been hit hard. You've been through some things that have broken your heart. But when Job went through, we don't touch. In my estimation, Paul is the Job of the New Testament. When the Lord called him in Acts 9, one of the things the Lord was going to do was not only use him to write Scripture and not only to be an apostle to the Gentiles and be used in an incredible way, but one of the things that was said to Ananias is, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. And Paul suffered. And we went through some of this last week. What's fascinating, when you get into 2 Corinthians 5, and and 2 Corinthians, the reason we're looking at this, it's really his, in a sense, his autobiography. We get more information about his life in 2 Corinthians than we do out of any of his other epistles. I mean, he really pulls back the veil. He pulls back the curtain. He talked last week in 2 Corinthians 1 about his, uh, you remember our affliction in Asia, brethren, when we were excessively weighted down, when we were excessively burdened, when we were excessively crushed beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Paul knew what it was, man, to to run into a brick wall. He knew what it was to get pancaked. Uh, And it was pretty much through his whole Christian life because God was going to use him as a model of suffering and how to handle suffering and how to handle persecution for the rest of us. So we look to him and his life. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage. That's quite a statement. Therefore, being always of good courage. It's quite a statement when you stop and think about everything he went through. Now, there's a long list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a shorter list, just in my Bible, across the page in 2 Corinthians 6, where he kind of recalls what he's been through. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, and you have to understand, 
he's being uh, harshly criticized by some in Corinth. They, they actually saying Paul is not a genuine apostle. I mean, how can he be a genuine apostle? The guy has so much affliction and so much suffering, obviously God's not even for him. It's kind of uh, an early form of what we have today we call prosperity theology. That if God's for you and you're walking with the Lord, everything in your life is rosy and good and you've got a lot of money and you're driving new cars and your blood pressure is perfect and your cholesterol is right where it should be and your kids get perfect scores on the SAT and your son's the starting quarterback and your daughter's the homecoming queen. And you know, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just really good. It's your best life now. Your best life isn't now. Your best life is coming. There's a place called heaven. This isn't it. Now, does God bless us? Absolutely. Astonishing how he blesses. He's been so good to us, it's just staggering. It's mind-blowing. But we're not pain-free. Oh, no, not by a long shot. We've got broken hearts. we got fears. Paul later would say, I've got, I got uh, fears within, conflicts without. That's another passage we don't have time to go to. But look at 6, 6-4. Six, uh, he's in a sense, and he doesn't like doing this. He's kind of have to defend. He's having to defend himself a little bit. So he says, "But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God." Watch this: in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments. Beatings, numerous beatings. Can't even recall. Imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. I haven't been hungry since I was born. Most of you guys haven't either. We've got so much. You know what it was to be hungry. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Watch this. By glory and dishonor. You had people in Corinth that was dishonoring him, lying about him, spreading rumors about him, by evil report and good report. Some loved him, some hated him. That's the way it usually is. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. Oh, you can't trust him. That guy's a false teacher. But he was true. He was right in the word of God. As unknown, yet well-known. As dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. That was Paul's life. Paul's life. Uh, he goes a lot more detail later on about what he, what he went through. Let's just say this. He went through a lot, which makes that statement in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, therefore always being of good courage, an amazing statement. How did he remain? How did he keep up the good courage? How did he manage that against all the opposition, against all the persecution, against all the beatings? Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Every guy in this room is following Christ. you got stuff in your life. You're concerned about it. There's some anxiety. It might be about one of your kids. It might be about your health. It might be a job situation. It might be, it could be all kinds of things. <clears throat> but you can't control it. And you can't get your arms around it. It's bigger than you are. And if God doesn't come through for you, and God doesn't help you, it could be the undoing of you. So in some area of your life, 
Every guy in this room who's following Christ, God is forcing you to walk by faith because if he doesn't come through, you're toast. So what's happening is you're having to walk not by sight because you can't see what God's going to do or how it's going to work out or how it's going to be resolved. You can't see what's going to happen, so you're walking not by sight. You're walking by faith, by faith. That's a Christian life. In Galatians, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. His grace and mercy will be there when it's needed. Okay. We walk by faith, not by sight. Watch this again. Eight, we are of good courage. There it is again. I say, and prefer, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Hey, when you're as beat up as this guy, when you've been through so many persecutions and jail cells and hunger and been, uh, uh, I think, five times, he took 39 lashes, would you not rather go to be with the Lord? Absolutely. And see, that's his preference. But he knows in his heart it may not be his time yet. He, he, would he prefer to be with the Lord? Absolutely. But you see, he's on earth. So he's going to stay the course and be of good courage. Verse 9. Therefore we have also as our ambition, whether at home or absent, watch this, to be pleasing to him. We're following Christ. And here's going to be the pressure that we're going to face as Christian men. The pressure is going to be, do I either please God with my life or do I please men? Do I please perhaps the government with my life? Do I please my company or do I please God? Because see, when the tables are turned and the playing field is, is, is changed and, uh, oh, it's fine if you believe that personally, but don't bring that to work. Don't bring your, your, don't bring your Christian teaching to work. Everybody plays with that expense account. Everybody. Yeah, but you see, Christian men have made it their ambition to please the Lord. And that doesn't go over real well, and that's not real popular. So you're going to get some pushback, and you're going to get some heat. But, verse 10 Puts it all in perspective. For we, all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is what is called the Bema Seat Judgment. Uh, there is a judgment in Revelation 20, which is the Great White Throne Judgment. And the Great White Throne Judgment, flip over there real quickly. The Great White Throne Judgment is is coming, verse 11 of Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, and whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, we're going to see this, guys. We're going to see this. I say it almost every time I teach. We live in a secular world with a secular education system. 
And the secularists say, this is the only world that there is. This is not the only world that there is, Jesus said. There's another world. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is another world. And there are two places in the next world. There are not three. There's no purgatory. That's not in the Bible. There is heaven and there is hell. Eternal separation from God. Horrific. Horrific. Uh, there are accounts in Revelation... Uh, it, it's, it's astonishing the rebellion that can be in people's hearts. I hadn't planned on doing this. And I'm not even sure I can find it. I just found it. Revelation. Revelation uh, 16. You got the, uh, the bowls of wrath coming down, and in 16.9 of Revelation, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. Watch this. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. They could have repented. They could have turned to him. God is not willing that any should perish, but all that should repent and come to him. But you see, they had an opportunity to repent. They could still repent, but they didn't repent. They blasphemed him. Instead of turning to Jesus and calling on his name, they blasphemed him. 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. And then you go down to 21 of 16 of Revelation, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. They don't want him. They don't want Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't want him. They don't want to submit to his authority. So the great white throne judgment, you see, there's a book. And if your book, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's because out of his grace and mercy, those of us who are ungodly, by his mercy and grace, not anything that has to do with us, because we didn't want him either. He just came and headlocked us and brought us in. All that the Father has given me will come, John 6. Fact is, <laughs> the fact is, if he didn't pull us, if he didn't draw us, if he didn't choose us, we wouldn't come. And out of his goodness and mercy, we praise him that he drew us to himself so there's a great white throne judgment, but you see, if your name's written in the Lamb Book of Life, Lamb's Book of Life, you don't enter into judgment at the great white throne. Judgment is not yours. You, you get a pass on judgment because Jesus took your judgment on Calvary. We'll see that in a minute. What you have back in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is a judgment for believers. It's a judgment. It's not, a, not if you're saved. It's a judgment of rewards. Um, 
After we're born again and we come to the Lord, the Lord is going to, uh, and when we stand before him, there will be some rewards. And he's going to look at the work that we have done, not, not work to be saved or already saved, but he's going to look at our obedience. He's going to look at our hearts. He's going to look at the things we did where we gave a cup of water in Jesus' name. Um, he knows the motivations, and what he's going to do, he's going to reward us. Um, we try to raise our kids with this concept of uh, responsibility. If you're responsible, if you're obedient, you get more privileges. If you're disobedient, irresponsible, you lose privileges. Now, if my kids were disobedient and really got hard-hearted and all that, did I run them down to the orphan orphanage and drop them off and say, change that kid's name and he's out of the family and I want nothing to do with that kid? No. I mean, I thought about it, but I didn't do it. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're out of the family. Now, did that mean my kids would get disciplined? Yeah. Did it mean my dad would discipline me? Oh, yeah. Big time. You see. But then when there was obedience and responsibility, there was reward. You get this. No, listen, we're average dads. He's, he's the perfect father. Okay. But there will be a day of account. No doubt about it. Now, I want to go back to this thing where Paul says, always being of good courage. He says it twice in these verses. Always being of good courage. Now, I got a question, and here's my question. How can Paul be of good courage in the midst of such excessive suffering and persecution? How does he maintain it? How does he keep going? This is going on for years and years and years and years. How does he do it? Look at verse 14. Because here's the nugget. He says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. We'll come back to that. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, and, and, and I want to say this, the answer to the question, how can Paul be of good courage in the midst of affliction and great persecution? He was controlled by the love that Christ had for him and demonstrated towards him and continued to demonstrate towards him. He was anchored in the love of Christ. He was anchored in the love of God. I mean anchored. Deep. That's what kept him going. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, meaning Jesus, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, that's us before we know Christ, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, that's Jesus. Therefore, go to 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. When we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, we become new men. It says old things have passed away, all things become new. Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul was reconciled through Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for Paul's sin and your sin and my sin. He reconciled us. 
things were made right because of what Jesus did for us. We'll see a little bit more on this in just a minute. And then Paul says, what he reconciled me, and now what I'm doing is telling people that they can be reconciled to him. Okay. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is amazing. Not counting their trespasses against them. Boy, is that good news or what? And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look at 21. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, my sin, your sin, sin of the world, was all placed on Jesus, who was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. Jesus had no sin. He took my sin. He took your sin. And he died in our place. And with his blood, he paid for our sins. Totally, completely. That's the gospel. The more you get that, the more you believe that, the more you grow in that concept, this is interesting, the more your courage will grow for whatever you face. You say, really? I think so. Because I think there's a direct correlation to Paul always being of good courage through the persecution and the, and the afflictions and the heartache and this and this and this and this. Why? Because the love of Christ controls us. What is the love of Christ? Well, it starts at the cross. You see, it starts at the cross. You never get over the cross. Christianity is the cross. Not a cross with Jesus hanging on it. He rose from the dead. It's an empty cross. Okay. So the love of Christ controls him, and the love of Christ encourages him. Now, my question is, here's another question. So how can Paul be of good courage? Well, really what I'm asking is, how can I be of good courage? And he gives, there are two reasons in this text, how he can be of good reason and hardship and difficulty. <clears throat> reason number one. How are you guys doing? You okay? Okay. Reason number one. The love of God controls against Satan's accusations. Let me say that again. The love of God controls against Satan's accusations. Now remember, Paul says we're always of good courage. Uh, Hey Paul, hey, Paul was the general. He was running the show. I mean, really, he was, I mean, he was the chief of the apostles. Do you think the enemy was going to come after him? Well, you know he did. You know he did. So how did he keep his courage up against the accusations of the devil? Revelations 12.10, Revel, it's Revelation. I don't know why I'm saying Revelations. Uh, Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. 
Um, we fight this spiritual warfare. We fight this spiritual battle. And the gospel, the gospel is so wonderful, and the gospel is so great, and the love of God is so great, sometimes we just really have trouble believing it because we're so screwed up. Here's what I notice in my life. I know from Scripture that Satan accuses me. And I know from my own experience that I accuse myself constantly because I don't live up to what I believe and what I teach. And thirdly, sometimes other people will accuse you. Uh, go to, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 7, please. In Romans chapter 7, once again, Paul gets very transparent. And he's talking about the conflict of two natures. Uh, before we come to Christ, you know, we're born with sin natures. That's why you never have to sit down with your son and say, son, it's a, it's a hard world out there. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. So, son, listen, you're only three years old, but I'm going to have to start teaching you how to lie and how to be dece deceitful. You don't have to teach your son or daughter how to be a little liar. Because it's in them. Um, they got it from your wife's family. <laughs> no, they got it from you. <laughs> they got it from her. We're all infected all the way back to Adam. And the whole human race was in the loins of Adam. That's wild to think about. Adam, Adam existed. He walked the earth. He'll be in heaven. You can talk with him. You can, you can have lunch with him. There's going to be a lot of time. But he'll be there. I mean, he literally existed. Of course, that's under attack even in the church today. He, he, he's alive. He, he existed. And when he sinned, the entire human race was in him. Everybody, every human that would ever live and ever be born was in him. Sin came into the world and... Perfection was broken, shattered, busted up. And sin came into the world. And from there on out, everyone ever born was born with a sin nature. So we're born with a sin nature, and then Christ comes in, and we just read that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. So now I have a new nature. So see, now I have two natures. So I, I've got the flesh and I've got the spirit. I want to please God, but then I've also got this old nature. And before we come to know Christ, your old nature is like this huge, massive giant that just tyrannizes you and dominates your life and controls you, and you got to do what he says, and he's just brutal, and he's mean, and he's wicked, and, you just, and, and you're absolutely enslaved to him. But when Christ comes into our life, Jesus is now Lord of our lives, and and he lives within us, and the Spirit of God lives within us. And now we're going to start growing, and we're going to start maturing. And it's going to be a slow growth, but we're on the path to growth. Oh, what happened to that big, looming giant? Oh, now that big, looming giant, he's, uh, he's in a wheelchair. He's emaciated. He's frail. His bones are weak. He can't see. He can't chew. He's in a rest home. He's got an oxygen tank, and he's got an IV. 
but he's still there. And here's the deal. You don't ever want to feed him. Ever. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You start putting the word of God in your heart, and then you say, Jesus, help me to practice this. Not just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. You see, and, and Lord, I'm just, I'm trying to sort this. I'm just trying to walk with you, and we sin, and we fall short, and oh, man, I screwed up again, and all that. But see, what you don't want to do is feed that old man. What you want to do is you want to starve him. What you want to do is you just want to step on that oxygen tube. You want him gasping. That's what you want. You don't want to feed him. You don't want to feel sorry for him. You don't want to encourage him. You want to kill him. Now, you won't, but that's what you want to do. But it's a battle. Romans 7, 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. This is Paul. Still dealing with sin nature. He's a Christian. Uh, for what I am doing, see if this doesn't sync with you. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. You ever felt that way? All the time. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. I can't live up to the law. That's why Jesus, when he came, he fulfilled the law for me. He fulfilled the law on every point. I break the law on every point. 17. So, but, but you see, the moral law of God is still in effect. You had the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The moral law, now the Lord Jesus, through his grace, he's helping me learning to fulfill the moral law. You see? Not, not, to, not, out of, not to be good and to be, uh, oh, I'm such a good guy so that I'm saved. I'm already saved. But now, he says this is the best way to live. So, okay, I want to live that way. But help me, Lord. All right, watch this. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. 18, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, that old man. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Does that not sink with you? It sinks with me. For the good that I want, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. I'm so glad Paul wrote this. He's the Apostle Paul. If he dealt with this, it encourages me. This comforts me that Paul had to deal with this. Because I deal with it all the time. 21. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So I'm back and forth, back and forth, oh my gosh, and then Satan comes in. You know, how can you even call yourself a Christian? How can you even share Christ? I mean, if they saw what you were like at home, if they saw what you just, if I just, what I just said to Mary, if they, oh my God, I'm just, I mean, I'm a train wreck. And I'm condemned, I'm condemned by the enemy, and I'm condemned by myself. 
There's no chapter break. It was put in so we could find our way through the, through the book. So there's no break. There's no space between 725 and 81. Notice the word, therefore. After just talking about how messed up and screwed up and conflicted he is, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whew. That's the grace of God. That is the love of God. That's the love of God, which enables me in my screwed up condition to be of good courage and to keep pressing on. Oh, but I failed so many times, Steve. I can't go back to the Lord. Oh, yeah, you can. Sure you can. Absolutely you can. And then chapter 8 is all about the love of God. There's no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the condemnation that should have come on you, Jesus took because he loved you. He loved us before we first loved him. We didn't love him. We hated him. We rebelled against him. He loved us before we first loved him. That's an amazing thing. He came after us. He sought us. He came after us like a heat-seeking missile. And we didn't even want to come. C.S. Lewis said, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. He didn't want that. He was an atheist. He was enjoying his life. He was a tenured professor. Hung out of pubs. Showed up every once in a while. Got his check. Not a bad gig. But the hound of heaven kept coming after him. Kicking and screaming, I came in. Uh, so in eight, you got the love of God. There's no condemnation because of the love of God. If you get down to the middle around verses 14 and 15 and 16, uh, you see the love of God because he's adopted you into his family. It's legal. It can't be changed. You're in the family. Jesus is your elder brother. God is your father. You're in. You got a platinum card. You're in. And Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It cannot be lost. And then you get down, and, and even as we struggle in 26, and we have a hard time, the Spirit of God prays for us. You see, in, in, in 26, the whole, when we struggle, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us as groaning too deep for words. You, you know what's great? When you're confused about how to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. And I'll show you what else is great. Look at verse 34. Not only does the Holy Spirit pray for you, but it says in 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So not only is the Holy Spirit praying for me, Jesus is praying for me because of his love for me. Whatever you're going through, the Spirit of God prays for you and Jesus prays for you. That's staggering. And see, the more I get a hold of that, when I'm fighting stuff and I'm discouraged and I'm worn out, and all that, the love of God, what? Controls me. Controls me. Calms me down. Steadies me. <laughs> Tim Challey's... Uh, I read his website often. He does some good stuff. 
He had a list. I copied it down on Monday. It was about what God has done with our sin. Let me give it to you, the brief version here. Because we got a sin problem, but Jesus came to deal with the sin problem, and guys, he dealt with it because he loves us. You ready? This will be fast. God throws your sin into the sea, Micah 7, 19. God treads your sin underfoot. That's also Micah 7, 19. You're in a camp, camping trip, and uh, you, know, you walk into the tent, and the snakes come in, and you got no tool and everything, but if you can get, you, you can stomp that sucker to death. That's what Jesus has done with our sin. Isaiah 38, 17, God throws your sin behind his back. Here's another one. God blots out your sin, Isaiah 43, 25. Literally, God erases your sin. I love that. Isaiah 43, 25. God forgets your sin. Hebrews 8, 12. How does he do that? I don't know. But he doesn't bring it to mind. He never brings it up again. Satan will bring it up. God doesn't because your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. So if it's being brought up and it's passed and it's under the blood, you know it's not the Spirit of God. It's the accuser. God removes your sin. Psalm 103, 12. He removes it? What, what, what do you mean? He removes it as far as the east is from the what? Somebody tell me how far that is. That's a long way. That's how far he removes it. Is this the love of God? Oh, my gosh. God covers your sin. Romans 4, verses 7 through 8. God takes away your sin. John 1, 29. John saw Jesus there, John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God cancels the debt of your sin because Jesus paid it. And not only did he cancel the debt, he transferred his righteousness into your account. That's Colossians uh, 2, 14. Lastly, God forgives your sin. 1 John 1, 9. Now, the Spirit of God... As we go through life, he'll convict us of sin. If, if uh, you're padding your expense account, you went along with the guys at work, he'll convict you. You know what? Go get it right. Oh, man, they're, gonna, you know, they're not going to believe the heat. Oh, I'll believe it. But uh, you've got to decide if you're going to be a man of God or not. Well, I'm not sure what's going to happen with my job. Well, you know what? He got you that job in the first place. Well, they might fire me. They might, but they can't fire you without his permission. I'm going to tell you something. If you stand for him, I'm going to tell you something. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. He'll take care of you, man. Because you're one of his guys. He's got you. 
Tim Challies, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S, challies.com. First uh, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, this, all you can confess are the sins you know about, the Spirit of God convicts you about something, confess it to Him. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, watch this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you confess your known sin, He's such a Savior and He loves us so much, He cleanses us from all sin. Because you see, I sin and I don't even know it. And so do you. He's such a savior, he loves me so much. If I'll confess what I know, he just wipes the whole slate clean. Is that amazing or what? That's astonishing. The love of God. The love of God. All right. So the first reason was the love of God controls against Satan's accusations, therefore I can be of good courage. Here's the second reason the love of God controls and grounds Paul in crushing trials and persecution. All right? How can he be of good cheer? Because the love of God controls and grounds him in crushing trials and persecution. Back in 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul says the love of God controls me. There's a guy named Cleon Rogers who's done a lot of, this is amazing work, and you can get his New Testament about the background of words, and you know, I use it all the time. But the love of Christ controls us in 14. That word controls, it means to hold together, to press together, to constrain the verb implies the pressure which confines and restricts as well as controls. Now stop and think this for a minute. So here's how I'd apply this. The love of Christ controls me, but the love of Christ holds me together. The, the, the love of Christ <laughs> pushes me together. He constrains me. Uh, and this is, this is why you go to seminary and take Greek, but present tense indicates it's a continual habit of life. Uh, what he's saying here is the love of God controls him, holds him together, and in a sense, it's, in a sense, he is continually being grounded by the love of Christ and what it does. See, how did he get through all this stuff? The love of Christ controlled him and held him together and, and motivated him and, and kept him going. Is that making sense? Kept him focused. Because he said earlier what he wants to do, whether in the body or out of the body, he wants to please the Lord. So, Lord, I just want to please you. And the Lord keeps supplying what we need. Okay, now. To explain this a little more, for the love of Christ controls us. <clears throat> if it's controlling you, it's got a grip on you. Turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to pick this up from verse 15, but we're going to concentrate on 17, 18, and 19. Uh, Paul says, I pray, yeah, this is 3.16 of Ephesians 3, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, 
to be strength. Okay, before I read this. So you got stuff in your life right now you don't want. You got pressure. You got some area where you're crushed that's hard, that's difficult. Okay. I pray that he would grant you, I bow my knees before the Father, he says in 14, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man and the stuff you're going through. Watch this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Watch this. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth contextually of the love of God. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. So John Bunyan, in the 1600s, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That's probably the second best-selling book in the world, buying the Bible. John Bunyan was an uneducated guy, rough, a fighter, was a soldier, uh, drinker, hard-driving, hard cussing, tinker. A tinker was a guy who traveled around from village to village with a 60-pound pack on his back, if he wanted to buy something, but he also repaired pots and plans and tools and all this stuff. That's, that's John Bunyan. And for kicks, they had gospel preachers that would, you know, preach in open-air things, and he'd take apples, he'd take rocks, and see if he couldn't hit the preacher right in the, right in the forehead. And he did that for kicks on his day off. And then what happened, he hung around, and as he's taking aim, he's, the Word of God cuts in his heart, and suddenly... He's convicted of his sin and calls out in the name of the Lord, and he's saved. Big turnaround, sort of like Paul in Acts 9. And this guy, who used to take aim, he started studying his Bible, and then he starts getting up and preaching. And what happened? He was gifted. He was uneducated, but he was gifted. And the guy could read, and he could study, and he could think. And he started reading and studying, and he'd get up and preach. And what happened, there wasn't 10 or 12. There were 10, 12, then there were 100, then there were 500, then there was 1,000, then there's 2,000 coming to hear this guy preach with power and authority. The authorities say, we can't have this because he's not ordained in the Church of England. And so they said to him, hey, look, it, you either stop preaching or we're putting you in Bedford jail. He had a wife. He had four kids. His oldest little girl was born blind. You know, he said, well, is me if I don't preach the gospel. Okay, here you go, man. So they put him in jail for 12 years. If you go to Bedford, they reconstructed his cell. Kind of interesting because, you see, the guy was a powerful preacher, and people are coming to Christ by droves. And all of a sudden, the most powerful preacher is put in the jail. But when you go to Bedford, and they'll show you what his cell was like, he had two cells. He had his night cell which is a regular, narrow, confined cell with a bed and a cot. But that would open up into a larger cell with a desk and with some bookshelves and with paper and quill, pen, ink. And for 12 years, he wrote. He wrote. He wrote. And his books, to this day, are purchased and Christians marvel at the truth in his books. They thought he was shutting him down. They weren't shutting him down. 
most people think of Pilgrim's Progress. He did a book called All Loves Excelling. This whole book, this whole book is on Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. The whole book. It's phenomenal. Uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now remember, he was persecuted as Paul was persecuted. His, his family would come to visit him, and I mean, they had no money. And one of the things he did besides write is that he would make shoestrings for people's boots so that he could have some meager income to give it to his wife to try and feed the kids. And when his little blind daughter would leave, he said it was like someone pulling the flesh off my bones. Twelve years he was in there. He finally got released, then they put him back in, and then he finally had three years on his own before he died. That's when he wrote this. give you a couple of nuggets. Because Paul says the love of Christ controls us. And he says that you may be able, that, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The love of Christ controlled Paul because Paul was rooted and grounded in the love of God. The biggest oak trees I've ever seen in my life are in England in the Cotswolds area, just west of Oxford. Uh, I've told you about this before. Massive, huge, magnificent, monstrous oak trees, four or five hundred years old. And as majestic and huge and massive those trunks are, they're nothing compared to the root system underneath. Because that's, see, what, that's how they withstand the storms for centuries and centuries. And centuries. Those roots, they're rooted, they're grounded, they're anchored. He, he hits these verses to encourage persecuted and afflicted Christians. That's why he's writing this book. Uh, he, he says Paul is writing this and praying for them, lest the afflictions that attend their world darken the glory of these things, Therefore, Paul makes a brief repetition and explanation to the end that they might be supported and made to live above them, your hardships. He also joins a fervent prayer for them that God will let them see in the spirit and faith how they, by God and by Christ, watch this, are secured from the evil of the worst that might come upon them. He goes down and says, and then he quotes the verse, being rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. You need to measure the love of God. You need to measure it. You need to survey it. You buy a house, whatever, they got to come out and do a survey. You need to survey the love of God. Knowing these measurements, that believers would never be discouraged, whatever troubles should attend their lives, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this because he writes in Old English. He goes on and says, breadth and length and depth and height are words that in themselves are both ambiguous and cause some wonder. They're ambiguous because unexplained and to wonderment because they carry in them an unexpressible something. And that something which that which far out goes, all those things that can be found in this world. What he's talking about, the love of God, 
the breadth, the depth, the height, the width. It goes beyond this world. He goes on and says this. Most properly, these verses show us the infinite and unsearchable greatness of God. The unsearchable and infinite greatness of God. Uh, I know, my. I'm going to go 10 more minutes. And if you need to leave, I understand. But I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Let me show you Job 11.7. Job comes right before Psalms. And just look at Job 11.7. 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Same concept. If you look at Romans 11.33. You know, you say, Steve, you know, I need to get home and watch Fox News. No, you don't. All that's going to do is screw you up. What this is going to do is root you and ground you and give you hope when you go to sleep tonight and you'll be able to sleep and rest and you'll be praising God and you get up in the morning and you got hope. No matter, you just got hope. Because you're rooted, you're grounded. Uh, Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Okay, now I'm just going to read this to you. These suggest unto us the unsearchable and infinite greatness of God who is a breadth beyond all breadths, a length beyond all lengths. He is a depth beyond all depths, and a height beyond all, beyond all heights, and that in all his attributes. He is an eternal being, an everlasting being, and in that respect, God is beyond all measures whether they be of breadth or length or depth or height. In all his attributes, he is beyond all measure, whether you measure by words, by thoughts, or by the most enlarged and exquisite apprehension. His greatness is unsearchable. His judgments are unsearchable. He is infinite in wisdom for you and for me. The greatness of God of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is that, if rightly considered, which will support the spirits of those of his people that are frightened with the greatness of their adversaries. All right, get that. All right, that's where we are in this country, the Christians. We're kind of frightened with our adversaries because they're taking stuff away that we've always had. All right, what is going to control you? What's going to give you peace? What's going to stabilize you? The love of God. And you've got to measure it. And the thing is, you can't measure it. For here is, okay, here we go. For here is a greatness against a greatness. Pharaoh was great, but God more great. More great in power, more great in wisdom, more great every way for the help of his people. Where he was, he was above them and over all things. These words, therefore, take in for this people the great God who in his immensity and infinite greatness is beyond all beings. I know they're high, but he's most high. Okay. You, you, Matthew Henry said this. 
about these measurements. Matthew Henry said, by the breadth of it, we may understand the extent of it, the extent of the love of God to all ages, nations, and ranks of men. By the length of it, it's continuousness from everlasting to everlasting. By the depth of it, it's stooping to the lowest condition with the design to relieve and save those who have sunk into the depths of sin and misery. By its height, it's entitling and raising us up to the heavenly happiness and glory that one day will be ours. Listen. Some of you guys, you know, David will talk about being in the pit. You know, the guy in Psalm 130 is, uh, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Sometimes we, we, the weight, the burden of sin, the burden of bad decisions, the weight, it sinks us down. We get so low, we think we're so low we'll never get up. But you see underneath Deuteronomy 33 of the everlasting earth, you can't get so low that he's not underneath. You can't do it. And you can't get out of his reach because of his length. Oh, I'm be I've had guys tell me, oh, I'm beyond the grace of God. I'm beyond hope. Is the arm of the Lord too short that it cannot save, that it cannot reach you? There's length to him. There's reach to him. This is the gospel. And then he finishes with this in 2 uh, Corinthians. And we've got to end with this because it's so great. Oh, I, I'm, in, I, I'm sorry, I'm in Ephesians 3. Look at this. This is all time. Uh, 19, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now watch this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever because of his breadth, because of his length, because of his depth, because of his height. <laughs> and that measures the love of God. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. You, we can't fathom what he's got in mind for us. And he's already done so much and he's already shown. Has God ever stunned you? Has he ever done something for you? I mean, apart from salvation, on top of that, that now to him who's able to exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask him, has God ever just shut your mouth and you, and you can hardly take him when he's done for you? There's more coming. That's a taste. That, that's a sample at the yogurt shop. It's a drop. There's a sea of immensity of his love. It's here now, and more is coming. We don't have to fear. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for truth, for love that we don't deserve. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? If, if there's a guy here tonight that thinks he's beyond your reach, that has never called on the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins and turned from his sin to you to be saved, I pray that you'll turn to you right now and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me and come into my life and show me how to live? Be my God. Be my shepherd. Show me how to live. We should rest well tonight, Lord because of your love. 
whatever we're going to face tomorrow, we should be confident and of good courage because of your love. In Jesus' name we pray.